Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the host of this show, as well as the director of the nonprofit, creatingafamily.org. Today is the first of a two-part series on adoptions in 2022 and beyond. Today, our particular topic is adoption options in 2022. Be sure to tune in next week when we're going to be talking about shifting realities in adoption with April Dinwiddie. She is an adult transracial adoptee as well as a thought leader in this field, so don't miss it. Today, as I said, we're going to be talking, focusing on adoption options in 2022, and I am so looking forward to this show. Uh, this is something I think about a lot, so it's this uh, to geek out with others who think about this is going to be fun for me. Uh, we're going to be talking today with Jackie Zerby. She is the domestic adoption supervisor with Vista Del Mar. We'll also be talking with Deborah Phillips. She is the founding CEO of Children's Connection, Inc., and that's a family building agency she created way back in 1987. She oversees the infant adoption program as well as the interstate waiting child adoption, their embryo donation adoption program, as well as home-based pregnancy and early childhood programs. And last but certainly not least, we'll talk with Vivian Martini. She is the family coordinator with Hopscotch Adoptions, which is an international adoption agency. So welcome, Jackie, Deborah, and Vivian to Creating a Family. Like I said, I am really looking forward to this. Thanks, Don. Thank you. All right. The way this show is going to be kind of arranged here, we're going to start with domestic infant, then adoptions, and then we're going to talk about adoptions from foster care. And then we're going to talk about international adoptions. And then we're going to look back and talk about some of the shifts that you guys have seen in the last five or so years. And then we're going to end by looking to the future and saying, where do we think, uh, what do we anticipate not only for 2022, but, but, but most important, perhaps beyond. So we're going to start with domestic infant adoption. So I'm going to primarily be talking with both Jackie Zerby and Deborah Phillips. All right. Starting with you, Jackie. So uh, what is happening with domestic infant adoptions? Talk about a, a broad question. Um, <laughs> I think that there is a perception is that, that domestic infant adoptions are, are becoming fewer and fewer. Is, is that true? Well, it certainly was slow for us this last year. I would definitely say that it's true that there are more adoptive parents out there, far more adoptive parents than there are women who are making adoption plans. So that's definitely true. But with that being said, we're still seeing placements. We're still seeing families have children placed with them. It's just, there are, there have been a lot more slow periods the last year or two, I would say, than than normal. And maybe that's pandemic related, which I'm sure we'll talk about a yeah, bit. We'll swing back to the pandemic. That's yeah. interesting. And it's, it may be, I, I, what I'm curious about is it, is it geographic? You're located mm-hmm. in California. Deborah, are you seeing, you're located in Texas, but both of you place children throughout the U.S. So uh, Deborah, are you seeing the same thing? Has, has the last couple of years been a significant reduction in the number of women making adoption plans? Definitely. I would totally agree with Jackie that that, and I do think it's primarily pandemic related that there are less, far less moms making adoption plans for their babies than there are families waiting for them. And possibly there's a little bit of an increase 
um, that we're seeing in families wanting to adopt. And maybe that's pandemic related too. If you've been staying home and watching everybody else deal with their children and get to do Zooms with your family and their kids are there and it just reminds you, you don't have children yet. So I think that in some ways the pandemic's turned a lot of us more into our families and what's most important to us. And so that may have increased some demand on the part of adoptive parents while moms are not placing as much for adoption. 2020 for us was only just a little bit slower, but 2021 was significantly slower for us in terms of number of moms. Um, But like Jackie, we're still having placements. We're still having matches where pregnant moms are selecting families and making adoption plans with them. So it's certainly not that an infant adoption is, is dead or gone, but it is definitely slow right now. I think that we'll see a change in the future. It'll be interesting to see exactly how it goes. Wish we had a crystal ball there for what will be happening in the next couple of years. I think we throughout this, we're going to say we wish we uh, had crystal ball. Yes. You know, just to throw out there, I know that in support of the more adoptive families, I know that uh, uh, infertility clinics have seen an a great boom in their business. So that would that would support what you're saying. Jackie, do you think it is that there are fewer unplanned pregnancies that might end up with an adoption plan being made? Or do you think that women are more likely right now to be not making deciding to parent versus making an adoption plan. Deborah, I would like to you to address that as well, but let's start with Jackie and then Deborah chime in. It could be a combination of either. I was recently talking with a colleague and they pointed out that because we're in a pandemic, our country is receiving a lot more support from the government than we're normally receiving, especially families. So it could be that unplanned pregnancies are still happening, but before people are deciding on adoption, they're having this other option of, of parenting and having feeling like they're going to be supported in their choice to parent. So that was an interesting thing that someone just pointed out to me recently, which could explain why we're seeing this, this large shift during the pandemic, because I think when the pandemic started in 2020, it it was more normal, like Deborah was saying. In this last year, there was a really big shift. So probably a combination. And I've had those same discussions, Jackie, with my colleagues as well. And I I do think a, a lot of moms who previously would have had an unplanned pregnancy and had very limited options have had far more financial options than they've had in the past. On the other hand, that worries me because in 2022, a lot of those financial programs to support families are going away or going to be more limited than they were in the past. Things like eviction, you know, no eviction periods of time have gone away and things like that. So it does concern me that later in this year, we may actually see moms that are in far greater need than they might have been even in 2019 or 2020. I don't know, though. So it it will just be one of those things we need to watch. Out of curiosity, uh, I'd like for both of you to answer. Deborah, what 
percentage of the moms who come to you is financial or poverty the primary reason why they are making an adoption plan? In a typical year, I think, I don't know that I can put an exact percentage to it, but I think that's a significant factor, definitely. And now with the reduction in adoption, the other thing we see is that the moms who are placing tend to be moms who are much more needy. They have either drug use or active drug use, or they have mental health problems. And those issues are so severe, they feel like that they can't parent. Where in the past, yes, we would have had those moms, but there would have been other moms that were making this decision for financial reasons. So the percentage of moms we have that are active drug users or that have severe mental issues that impact their daily living, um, not to the point where they can't make decisions about placing children, but just their daily life is impacted. There's been a great shift in that for us because the percentage before would have been much smaller percentage of active drug users. And now that's a huge percentage. So those are the moms that would have not made a financial, had finances as a reason. And they're still here, but the ones that finances and being in poverty is their driving force that they already have children they can't support, they can't provide a, a, a place to live, things like that, that those moms are the ones that we're not seeing right now. It'll be interesting to see how that is in California. Yeah, Jackie, are you seeing something similar? Yeah, so my agency doesn't do a lot of direct matching for families and expectant parents, but Occasionally, we'll have someone local reach out to us, or there will be an agency or attorney who will connect us with an expectant mom in the area because they need a social worker to work with her. So from the people locally I've worked with, I would say it's 50-50. I mean, Los Angeles is a very expensive place to live, so I would most of it is a poverty concern, not being able to afford rent or raise a child because of financial concerns. I would say that's really common here. Yeah. It's interesting because I don't think anybody wants adoptions where it's because of financial reasons. You know, we want people to be able to afford to raise their children. But on the other hand, you know, it's the if the if the payments that are the financial payments that are or the financial support that the government is giving or the eviction protections are not going to be there, then it's a hopefully other programs will uh, these moms will be able to these families will be able to avail themselves to other programs as as time goes on, which actually is a good segue into our <laughs> that moving into uh, adoptions from foster care. Speaking of services being available. You know, there in many ways, this is an unknown, it feels like, because we've had some federal legislation, which was actually the Family First Services Prevention Act, or Family First Act is what we call it. The uh, It's actually passed in 2018, but it feels to me like, from what I am seeing, it is, you know, a- after it was passed, we had to get implementing legislation, and then it had to be, tri- trickle down to the states, which are actually going to be implementing it, and the states had to adopt regulations, and then it has to get down to the county or the parish level. So there are, you know, it, it's, we're seeing it now more really in 2021, certainly, even though the, the law passed in 2018. 
And the this is a gross oversimplification of the Family First Act, but it is to try to support families so that one fewer children enter foster care to begin with, that that we support families and to try to keep them intact. And then then and then after foster care, there is an emphasis, and there has been for quite some time, even before this act, on reunifying families. That is, of course, the intent of the foster care system is to heal families. But there's even more emphasis on that. And in addition, that if the family can't be healed, to look for extended family kinship care to, to step in to provide permanency for these children. So potentially this will have a significant impact on the numbers of adoption from foster care. And uh, I always, this is my kind of my standard spiel. It's my overview of my adoption or adopting from foster care 101. So let me, let me give that now just to lay the groundwork. And then I'm going to open up the discussion with Deborah about what she's seeing. But my adoption from foster care 101 begins with this. And that is, there are two groups of children, basically, in foster care. There's a group of children whose parental rights have already been terminated. These children are legally free for adoption now. The number changes a little bit year by year, but say over 100,000. Now, not all 100,000 of these children are actively looking for a family. Some have already been matched, but still, there are there is this group of children. They tend to be over the age of eight. And if there are any younger children, they tend to be part of a sibling group. And, and not only are they over the uh, generally over the age of eight, there are more sibling groups in there because we try to keep siblings together. So it's harder to find the right family for them. So there is that group of kids, terrific kids, a wonderful way uh, to create your family. There is a, another group of kids, and these kids are in foster care. Their parental rights have not been terminated. The goal for these children, generally when a child comes in, almost always the goal is family reunification. Of those children, there's over 400,000 children who are in foster care in the United States. Of those kids, about 50% of the time, they are able to reunify with their family. There's After the child comes in, the family will, whatever the reason, and the reasons are usually neglect or uh, substance abuse as to the reasons children come into care. And so the family is given a plan. They have to get a job. They have to get a house. They need to get into rehab, whatever. They have a plan that they need to work. If the family works this plan, then they, and the goal of the foster parent is to work with the family, try to different states call it different things, co-parent, shared parenting, but to try to work to build a connection and maintain the connection between the child and the family. The family heals and about 50% of the time that happens and the child goes back to their family. About 25% of the time, the child, after a child enters foster care, they are adopted by a non-relative. And that non-relative is usually their foster parents. Not always, but usually the foster parents will be given the choice of whether they want to adopt the child because we don't want to, we want to have fewer placement disruptions. Each placement disruption is a trauma in a child's life and less trauma is better. So I, I should have also said of that 50% that reunify, that would also include going to kinship. So it's probably slightly over 50 would go into, it'd be reunified with their family or with other kin. So about 25% of the time, 
And if you are a foster parent, you will be given the option to adopt the child. The children in foster care in general tend to be, obviously they're going to be younger since we've said that the others are over eight. They tend to be younger children. So for people who are saying, I want to adopt a young child or a baby, the reality is this. The only way to adopt a young child or baby is to start as a foster parent. However, starting as a foster parent means that you assume the responsibility and the expectation that your role is a temporary, safe, loving place for this child to be with the expectation that you are going to support the birth family and work to help reunify this child. And that's a tough place for some people to be, particularly those who are very, very anxious to to create their own family, because this is not creating. You are becoming a parent, but it is a foster parent. But if you can get your mind into that place, that emotional place that says, while I am waiting to become a parent, I would like to be a soft landing place for a child, knowing full well that the child I am loving may well not end up being my child forever, probably won't be. And if you can accept that, then then becoming a foster parent and knowing that about 25, you might, about 25% of the time, you would be able to adopt the child that is placed with you. So Deborah, now I'm going to get off of my soapbox and my um, and turn to you. Does that sound about right to you? It, it definitely does. And that's a really hard place for foster parents to get to, to be where I'm a temporary landing spot. I love how you described that for a child, but their goal is to help reunify that family. That is a, that's a really tough spot particularly for foster parents who've had their own traumas through infertility issues. And so it's it's a real challenge getting to that spot, particularly when you're, you know, in your mind, you think, oh my gosh, I could be such a good parent and I've done everything I could be to be a parent. And I've, you know, done everything the doctor said, or I've done everything I can for us to have a family and we still don't have one. And then I see the families that that we're working toward reunification with. And I think, oh, my goodness, you know, I would surely be a better place for this child. So it's a very, it's a very, very challenging place to be. For those people who can't get there, it, it is a great way to support a good number of children as you get to the point where you can build your family by adopting a child. Um, through foster care. But reality is that's a a long process and it is definitely a bumpy road. So, And and that's the challenge for organizations like Creating a Family because that is our challenge. We, it is our mission to help parents realize this and help prepare them and then to support them because it's a, it's a wonderful way to parent and it's a wonderful way and, and I'll be honest, most people who go into this with the idea that they want to adopt, if they can get themselves in that emotional headspace, are able to adopt. They have to, it's not always the first child. In fact, most often it won't be the first child in your home. Mm-hmm. But exactly. you will be able to, if you stay at it, you will be able to adopt. There's no guarantees, but most often that's what we've seen. And keeping in mind that plenty of people go into fostering with no desire to adopt. They are wanting to only be foster, but there's another group of people who, you, as you identified, who are, are wanting to create their own family. 
I am so excited to tell you about a site where you can get more expert-based content that expands on today's podcast topic. The Jockey Bean Family Foundation has supported our ability to offer you 12 free online courses at our creatingafamily.org online parent training center. You can get there by this shortened link, and it's bit.ly slash JBF support. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash J-B-F support. There is a great variety of topics to choose from, and an example would be how does adoption affect the bio-siblings in a family, a really good course, and one if you have bio-kids you should be thinking about. So check it out at bit.ly slash J-B-F support. So let's talk a little bit, Deborah, about with, have you seen much with the, uh, how has the pandemic impacted adoptions from foster care? Well, we we definitely in 2020, when things were really shut down, we initially, the pandemic started and we didn't even re- remember those days when we didn't know how COVID 19 was even being spread. So yeah. um, it definitely slowed down new foster parents coming into the system because they it was impossible to get home inspections and people were scared to have anybody come into their home anyway. Mm-hmm. And so the the recruitment of families, new families to become foster families and for those families to get approved definitely slowed down to a crawl. Um, I think in, in our state, particularly, um, especially the last half or three quarters of 2021, some of those restrictions have kind of gone away and people are able to more go about their business, maybe still taking some precautions, but um, able to get inspections, able to feeling more comfortable with somebody coming to your home. And so hopefully we're moving out of that. Although I think there's still people that have health concerns that, you know, it's are still not going to be comfortable becoming foster parents until we are a little less pandemic minded or, you know, right in the midst of some of this now. So, so it's hard to know how much it's affected adoptions. Has it been that, or has it been that we've done a better job of reunifying or is it that there are more relatives that are willing to take children? The numbers of adoptions from foster care are definitely decreasing, at least in my state. And and I can't speak for the whole country, but just since 2019, we've probably seen a good number, you know, a good lowering of the number of actual finalizations and children actually adopted out of foster care. So like in 2019, it was slightly over 6,100 adoptions that were done in Texas, specifically out of foster care. And in this past year, the numbers are are right at 4,500. So Mm -hmm. it's a pretty good drop in the number of adoptions. Now, the vast number of adoptions, the majority of adoptions in Texas are definitely relative. So again, that impacts that idea of I'm coming to be a foster parent so I can adopt because you need to know that the first goal is reunification, but the second goal really is to look diligently for relatives and that is is working better. And some relatives do complete the full adoption process, but we do see quite a few relatives 
that my agency works with that never, they get a placement through foster care and the child exits foster care and is no longer considered a quote case for foster care, but they never actually do an adoption. Mm-hmm. They do some type of custody or permanent guardianship or something along those Something lines. like that. Or or maybe that maybe they don't even go to court. Maybe it's just a very informal relationship. They had a written placement document from CPS that says CPS was placing the child there. And then that's all the family ever does, you know, so which does make it difficult for a child to get a valid birth certificate that actually represents who they're living with. And you know, for lots of reasons, you know, permanency needs to be a little more permanent than a, such an informal arrangement. But w- with the numbers decreasing like that, is that the pandemic or is that we're doing a better job of of other things? Or, or does it have to do with, you know, just the family first impact here is definitely being seen now in 2020, the end of 2021, but definitely 2022. Yes. There's lots of new programs, lots of new resources, and just the design, program design and planning to be able to implement something else that will actually be permanent in a year or two with this funding, that takes time and it takes professionals' energy to do that kind of away from the normal day-to-day placing mm-hmm. of children. So, An attitude shift. Yes. And it's kind of hard to pinpoint what, why are we having less adoptions because there's so many factors. Yeah, I'd wanna, I wanted to shift to because it's an, it's an interesting thing. We uh, At least in 2020, First of all, we don't have the national, we have great national statistics, the it's the AFGAR uh, statistics, uh, which is an acronym that I don't remember what it stands for right now, but are great. If we, know we have so little statistical information for like domestic infant adoption, but we do for adoptions from foster care. But it's a, it's a, as they say in the COVID talk, you know, it's a lagging indicator. The 2020 data just came out. And so we so we don't actually know the answer, but but I am hearing the same thing you're hearing in all states that uh, adoptions per se, the 2020 numbers, the percent of children is still was about that were adopted by non-relatives has I think it's 25 percent. And that's what it has been for for many years. So but that's a that's 2020. And we said so we don't actually know what's happening now. But now I want to talk about the impact of family first, because, as I said, that the impact of family first was to, you know, go upstream and stop children from coming into foster care. And then and then once in, try to get them back into their families, although that has always been the goal of foster care. But if that's not possible to find relatives, again, that is a gross oversimplification of a very complex act. But for the sake of this podcast, we're going to to go with that. So what are you seeing as far as programs that are coming to prevent children from entering foster care? So to support families upstream so that they, they don't end up neglecting and having their children removed? Well, I think that one thing that's been really interesting to me because I've kind of been around the block a few times in Texas, having created this agency so long ago. And recently it's been very interesting because I think it's the first time I've seen date folks that run the foster care and adoption agency here that are actually saying to professionals, 
what is it that you think would work? We have this funding. We're spending this year planning what we're going to do with this money and how should we spend it? And having more open ears to want to listen to adoption professionals and to allow kind of some grassroots kind of, here's what we've been saying we need all along. Let's figure out how we can make that into a, create a system for that and have more of that and less of another. So everything from trying to come up with programming to support moms that are pregnant that are also youth in foster care, which there've been no resources really for ever. And so things like that, as well as trying to do do very unique things for recruiting relatives and recruiting families to taking children on. So really all kinds of things. I mean, we actually heard a state administrator this fall say, you know, if you have a good idea or you have a way you think we can spend this money, I'm open to hearing it. Please contact me. And I don't think I've heard that ever. So um, it's it's very encouraging that they're listening to professionals and, and to people who've been in the field for a while to say what what's going on. But we're also, we wind up creating multiple layers in the middle, you know, as well, you know, so sometimes it take it, we create new systems, it causes us to have even more time from things to get to the top to filter to the bottom. So we'll have to see how all this works out in the end. I do think we'd be remiss leaving the foster care topic, though, before we, if we don't mention specifically foster youth, because at least in our state, we still see far, far too many teens that age out of foster care Amen. and are are not getting enough support. And I do think the Family First funds that are coming into states, that's one way states are really looking at how can they support teens after they get out of foster care in that young adulthood time when their brains are still not they're not completely adults, but they definitely feel like they are completely adults and they've not had the support they needed to develop the skills that other more typical kids would have developed at home with their, you know, family unit. And so we see far too many of them coming out of foster care with no support right now. So I'm looking forward to that changing. And honestly, those are a lot of the moms that come and what to do a voluntary placement. Uh, We have a pretty good number, usually in typical years, of moms who have aged out of foster care and within a couple of years are pregnant and have a child and they're living so on the edge of society and barely making it because they, they have no support whatsoever other than you can go to college for free if you want now how you're going to get there and apply and yeah knowing how to exactly you need I mean we need parents children yeah. adolescents I need families yes. adolescents need uh families. you know the idea that our our parenting is over when our kids are 18 as a mother of four that are past 18 let me tell you that's a joke <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't end at 18. The willingness to think that they need my help, even though I am aware that they need is totally different. So yeah, no, you are. And, and, And along those same lines, as we're talking about adopting from foster care, remember the first group that I mentioned, which is about 100,000 plus 
kids whose rights are legally terminated. These are terrific kids. They do tend to be older. We have a large number of tweens and teens who really do need families, uh, not as foster families, but since we're talking about adoption options, these children are available for adoption. So just throwing it out there that let's, when we think of adopting from foster care, there are some just dynamic kids who are simply waiting for families. So, And I do think that that's an option as private infant adoptions become less that, you know, as professionals, we should at least present that option that infant adoption is not the only option Mm -hmm. for building your family. And if you are a childless couple and you really feel like you're ready for a family, that there are kids that you can adopt without having to even become a foster family if you want to look at some of those older kiddos. And we do help families a lot do interstate adoptions through foster care so they never even become a foster family. Exactly. They go straight to being an adoptive family. And one last thing, and then we are going to move to international, but one last thing. I hear, you know, they say, I just want to go through some of the firsts. There are still so many firsts with older kids. I mean, think about it. First time to go sledding, first time to go to Disney World, first time to learn to drive a car, first date, first, mm-hmm. all the firsts. So there's, you know, firsts don't have to be the first steps they can be or the first word. There's still a lot of wonderful, exciting things that you can, a lot of firsts out there for, for older kids. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Hey guys, can you do us a favor and subscribe or follow, depending on what it's called, the creatingafamily.org podcast, this podcast you're listening to. Uh, you can do that wherever you prefer to catch your podcast, be it on iTunes, Spotify, whatever. You can subscribe right there. That way, not only do you never miss a week of great content like today's episode on adoption options, but you also have access to our incredibly deep archive of shows over the last 14 years. And it's convenient and it's easy. So please do it. All right, now to talk about international adoptions. And certainly of the, I think of the three that, uh, types of adoptions we're talking about here, domestic infant adoptions from foster care and international, it certainly feels like international has gone through more of a sea change shift in the last couple of years. But but in particular, going forward, that's what we're talking about now. We'll, 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 come, we'll circle back to say what the shifts have been in the last five years, but there have been a lot of them. So Vivian, Let's talk a little about what what are you currently seeing right now with international adoptions? And you work with quite a few programs. Hopscotch has a number of of programs in a number of countries. Yeah, I think I think what we're seeing the two big trends in international adoption. Number one, the numbers continue to decline, and that is not really related to the pandemic. That we were seeing that before the pandemic. The latest statistics that we have from from USDOS, there were 1,622 international adoptions in in 2020. And so that's not a large number by by any stretch compared to what it used to be 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, we're talking 10 or 15 in the mid-1990s, which is more than that. I mean, we were talking over 20,000. So just to kind of keep things in perspective. Okay. Yes. So continuing decline and in overall numbers. And then also the children that now are coming to the United States as international adoptees are not infants. 
not necessarily even toddlers. Most of them are between five and 12 years old. A great majority of these children has some sort of disability and or they are older and or they are part of a larger sibling group. So international adoption now is not very viable for families looking to adopt a relatively healthy infant. In fact, again, that those USDOS statistics indicate that in 2020, there were 20 children under the age of 12 months that came to the United States. That's less than 1% of the total number. So when I advise families looking at international adoption now, I encourage them to research special needs and what they feel they could perhaps accommodate in their family. And I encourage them to think about older child adoption. And by older, I don't necessarily mean two years old. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. school age children, preteens, teens. It, that has been a shift in the in the time I've been involved. It, it, that it used to be we would say older, and we would you know two or three year old was considered older. Well, that's not now when we say, I think as you point out, the majority of children coming over are school age. Correct. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, and I, and I certainly know that the I almost feel like it's the elephant in the room because China, and, and I'm speaking of China and what's going to be happening with adoptions from China. In the past, China for quite a few years, in fact, for many, many years, has been the largest placing country to the United States. And currently, and since the pandemic, so this is pandemic related, it has been, China has not been processing international adoptions, which has been heartbreaking for families who were already, well, for families who wanted it, but but especially for who are thinking about adopting, but especially for families who were already matched with a child and many of them were, you know, scheduled to travel, and and now everything is on hold. The truth I have tried, I contacted NCFA, National Council for Adoption, and have talked with agencies that have China programs, and I know Hopscotch does not, so I was doing this, and the truth is, it's anybody's guess. That's the honest answer. Nobody knows what's happening currently. China is still saying that they are not starting up the program again because of COVID. And that may be their reason. It's, you know, we just simply don't know what the future is going to be. Uh, Vivian, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I want to add that while this is certainly an extremely frustrating situation for the families who are in adopting from China, waiting for their children to come home, China is kind of an exception as far as I can see, with how strictly they have addressed the pandemic in terms of adoption. And most other programs continue to operate. Things are a little bit slower. There are some additional requirements in many cases, but we are still seeing children come home through through many programs that we offer. Good. You answered the question I was going to ask. Fascinating. Okay. So if you're wanting to adopt internationally, other countries that are there any other as far as we know other countries that were that were already who are currently prior pre-pandemic were placing children have gone back to placing kids is it taking longer or about the same i think it generally is taking a little bit longer and it's a sort of moving target that we're continuously monitoring in real time because things are always changing and we're always getting notices from the us embassies in these countries telling us 
Okay, we're now needing a PCR test for families to come into the country. Okay, now we need a diplomatic note for the family to be able to enter the country for an adoption. We need a PCR test for the family to come into the embassy. There are situations where Morocco, for example, right now has suspended all air travel. So our families that have received referrals through that program, while they have the referral, they can't get themselves into the country for the time being to complete the process. So things are really constantly changing. And I don't know how many emails I've sent saying, just FYI, this will probably change again before it's your turn to travel. Um, But just updating families on the constantly evolving requirements uh, that are making processes take a little bit longer. There are stops and starts. There are some delays. But in the end, we are still really seeing children come home. Yeah. And that is, that's an important, that's an important note. And, and we also generally know, I mean, if you go into it thinking, all right, this is going to be a bit of a ride and I'm not going to have a defined time. You'll be better off, I think, because the changes are continuing to happen. And we keep thinking, or at least I keep thinking, well, Surely in six months, we're going to be past most of this. But then I said that six months ago. I said that 12 months ago. So, And I so far have been wrong every time, so I'm no longer saying it. Well, we've talked about where we are now, and I think we've talked uh, kind of looking back to where we were. So let's look forward and to, to later 2022, but also beyond. Uh, let's start going back with domestic infant Jackie and Deborah, starting with Deborah and then into Jackie, where do you see domestic infant adoptions going in the future? Again, I, I wish I had that crystal ball, <laughs> but I do think we'll see some increase in moms placing again, particularly when they start having more financial constraints, maybe even later this year, that finances will still be a factor, even though that. Honestly, that's not why we want moms to place. It's it reality, yeah. you know. So I think we'll see that. I think we'll see less choices of agencies. Uh, I personally know of several small agencies, both in Texas and in other states, that have closed due to the pandemic and that are permanently closed, that will not reopen. And so I think there'll be a little bit of consolidation of maybe some of the smaller agencies being absorbed by bigger agencies or there just being a lack of local services where there used to be some and folks will be more, you know, going across state lines or shopping on the internet for adoption professionals in the future. We're seeing right now uh, with our home studies, a lot more step-parent and grandparent adoptions than we're seeing private placement. So I do think that's pandemic driven. Again, that focus on focusing in on your family and, you know, I've got this child in my home and oh my gosh, what would happen if I got COVID and passed away or whatever? Would they get my social security benefits? Would they, you know, would they get my insurance or whatever? I need to legalize this relationship. So we're, we definitely see that trend And I think that may still continue because even if the pandemic is a quote over, if that ever happens, you know, I think that it has impacted our culture enough that that we've really had a shift toward family. And so I think that'll continue as well. Jackie, 
I, I should have gone with you first. Deborah, Deborah got all the good ones. <laughs> I, sorry I know. I know. Deborah did a great job answering that. And I, I agree with everything she had to say there. I think that, I mean, as the pandemic comes to an end, whenever, whenever that will be, I know we thought that we would see strides this year and here we are in 2022, but I think things will go back to normal, whatever that is. And I think adoption is always going to be there as an option for people who are in a really tough spot and that's never going to change. We want people to be supported and to be able to parent their children if they have that choice. So the support for families right now has been nice, but I don't think it's going to last forever. So we'll see how that plays out with the pandemic ending. And then also Deborah's point of people needing to work with other adoption professionals to help them with the matching process in domestic adoption. That's something we've already seen in California. I think California is a very attorney-driven state and people use facilitators to help with that piece. So I think that's something that'll definitely continue so people can connect with expectant parents beyond state lines. So I think that trend will definitely continue with our families as well. Yeah, that makes very good sense. Uh, More parents, fewer children means more options that need to be explored. Deborah, you and I talked a bit about the future of foster care. Anything you want to add about foster care adoptions in the future? Well, just that we need to invent some system where we can recruit more families for those children. And, And I think each state has a really marvelous opportunity to do that with the funding that's coming in with the Family First Act. And so I really hope that we all can do some judicious planning to to figure out that problem in every state and even in Texas in different regional areas. And a different approach might need to be taken to try to encourage families to step up and accept children from foster care, even if it's a relative you know, maybe they didn't think they could parent this child, but with appropriate supports put in place, maybe they will be able to. So I think that'll, um, that will encourage probably more relatives, but maybe some more non-relatives to decide to also become foster parents, even if it's not for the purpose of adoption. Right. And I do think that kinship adoption. So, you know, if, if you're looking to adopt, letting your family know, because kinship can be defined in different ways, but any connection is is better than none. So even if it's a second cousin, that depending on the state and different states have, and there's also such a thing as fictive kin is often called. Yes. Your hairdresser, the woman that you pay for coffee at the 7-Eleven every morning, but you have a relationship with her, you know, those we've seen adoptions take place in those kinds of very casual relationships, but that was okay, better a relationship with the child. Yeah, that was better for the child than to have no relationship whatsoever. Right. It, yeah. Yeah. So fictive, I guess, can be. I had not seen it defined quite so broadly, but this, if you have a relationship with the child, that would be helpful. This show is brought to you by the support of our partners. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing 
education and support to pre and post adoptive and foster and kinship families. One such partner is Spence Chapin. As a recipient of the Human Rights Campaign's All Children, All Families Seal of Recognition, Spence Chapin is committed to equality in adoption and is proud of the many children have placed in loving, stable, same-sex households. Spence Chapin's International Adoption Program in South Africa and Colombia encourages applicants from all types of families. You can visit spence-chapin.org backslash LGBTQ adoption to learn more. All right, and now the future for, boy, that's a that's an ominous thing to, to task you with, Vivian. The future of international adoption. Where do you see international adoption going in the future? Yeah, so I already mentioned, I think that the two biggest factors or the two biggest things that we're seeing and have been seeing for the last five to 10 years is that international adoption is moving to placement for children who have disabilities, placement for older children, placement for sibling groups. And sometimes it's not an or situation, but an and or situation. Mm-hmm. And when we're thinking about special needs and disabilities, it's it's not just what people may picture, Down syndrome or genetic conditions or cerebral palsy or limb differences. There's a greater awareness now, and I'm so happy about that, that there are conditions like complex developmental trauma, including neglect and abuse, mental illness, autism, FAS, learning differences. And that may not be diagnosed in the child's country of origin, but but agencies and families are increasingly aware that these are conditions affecting international adoptees that are coming to our country. So it's an option, a great option for families that are prepared and have the resources to care for a child with disabilities or an older child or Mm -hmm. a sibling group. And those are the kinds of things that we can sort of prepare families for Mm -hmm. and make them aware before they ever step into the process. The other aspect of international adoption is the stuff that's not in our control. What happens in the sending countries, countries open, countries close, countries change the criteria for adoptive parents that they will allow. Uh, So that's, uh, again, a moving target where we're monitoring and can't necessarily predict if a program will stay open, what kind of placements will come out of that program. Uh, For example, right now, a lot of eyes are on Ukraine because with the potential war there, it could cause a lot of delays and other impacts on the adoption process. And Ukraine continues to be one of the bigger sending countries to the United States. I was just reading last night that um, Latvia is closing to U.S. adoptions in July 2022. So those are things that we can try to monitor as, as adoption service providers, but we certainly cannot give families an idea of what could happen when they get started. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a, such a good point. I am also seeing fewer agencies. Are you seeing that as well? Consolidation of agencies or just agencies that are no longer able to, to provide the services that they want to be able to provide and so are, are going out of business. Are you seeing that as well? Yeah, unfortunately, we're seeing that two agencies just relinquishing their accreditation or just closing because the reaccreditation process through USDOS and IAMI is 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 grueling. It's it's time consuming, and it's it's very difficult to 
to keep up with it. So that is one of the reasons why uh, particularly smaller agencies that maybe were just doing one or two programs and home study in their state are, are closing their doors. So sadly, that means fewer options for mm-hmm. uh, prospective adopters. It could mean, I guess we don't know this, but it means that the agencies who remain, though, will have broader programs, you know, placed with more countries. And also, hopefully, I mean, I speak as someone who believes so strongly in the educating and supporting adoptive parents. So hopefully we will see more pre and post support uh, just because the agencies will be fewer, but will have more programs. So that may be a pipe dream, but I want to throw it out there. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. When when my husband and I were starting our adoption journey, we were actually looking for a small agency because we wanted them to know us uh, and we wanted to know them. So that was important to us, but it may not be a problem going forward. Yeah, it just may not be an option. That's exactly right. It yeah. may not be an option and it may not be a problem. I mean, maybe yeah, the, exactly. the larger consolidated agencies will do an, an incredible job and and everything will be okay. I hope so, because I feel the same way that I, I uh, also think that, you know, the smaller, more personal agencies sometimes do a, even a better job. But anyway, nonetheless. Uh, another trend, Dawn, that we're seeing is that um, the waiting, identified waiting child adoption path is becoming more and more popular for families in country programs that allow a soft matching option where we will receive information on a child that has been cleared for international adoption is waiting, looking for a family, and we can try to find that family. And then the family can pursue that specific identified child in a process that generally is very efficient, very streamlined, and completes in 12 to 18 months beginning to end, which is really the fastest way that you can adopt internationally at this point. Vivian, how do they, how do you find a child that to soft match with? So the central adoption authorities will provide us with information on the children that they have cleared for international adoption. They have undergone the orphan investigation and they, there's no permanency option for them in their country of origin. So now the central adoption authority is looking in other countries. And depending on the country, there is more or less information on the child, but there's there's generally enough that we can work with to see, can we find a family here in the U.S. that is well-prepared uh, and ready for such a child? These are usually children with disabilities, sibling groups, and and or older children 10 years and up. Okay. All right. Any other trends? The, the last one I wanted to point out is that we're seeing, particularly with our Eastern Europe programs, that adoptive families are connecting with families of origin. I think in the past, international adoption was thought out in part by families who wanted to have a closed adoption and didn't want there to be some contact between themselves and the child and the family of origin. But now I think people are more aware how important that information is for the adopted individual, more aware how important those connections are for the adopted person. So more families are open to to looking for the birth families and the first families and connecting with them. And it's, it's working out in some cases and relationships are formed. And I think that's, I think that's really great for, for everyone involved. And I've experienced it myself. I have three children adopted from Eastern Europe and we have contact with all of their families of origin. And it's, it's been a really positive experience for us. Hmm. Excellent. That's interesting. 
Well, thank you so much, Jackie Zerby, Deborah Phillips, and Vivian Martini for being with us today to talk about adoption options in 2022. And remember, check out the second part of this series, Shifting Realities in Adoption, next week. And to our audience, thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week.